0: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Bear. Welcome to Think About It. I'm thrilled to sit here with Robbie Cohen, who's Professor of History and Social Studies at New York University's Steinhardt School. Robbie, thank you, first of all, for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So. You've written over 10 books on the history of the free speech movement, on social movement, civil rights movement, a really incredible biography of Mario Savio, who was the founder of the free speech movement at the University of California. Another book I'd love to mention is Rebellion in Black and White. You wrote, you co edited. Yeah, on student activism in the 60s, yeah. And student activism, which I think is a really powerful and wonderful book. And I put all the references to the books on the website so the listeners can get those. And you've studied and been really interested in student activism for over 30 years or so, and studied the last 50 years of that. And I've read a couple things you've written recently. We're going through another moment of really, you could look at it, really positive student Mm -hmm. engagement Mm -hmm. and student activism on campus Mm -hmm. and that free speech is often used as the lens through which to view this. We can start there, what's happening today, and then maybe go back historically a bit to what happened 50 years ago. Sure.
1: Well, first of all, I just would say that free speech is being used in a way now that it was never used in the past. I mean, there are, what I mean is it's been embraced by the right-wing students as a kind of a fig leaf to... I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of free speech masquerades going on, that everything's a free speech issue now. And, you know, having studied genuine free speech movements, I don't think that's true. So just to give you an example, trigger warnings, you know, that's the media blowing this whole thing about when people are, uh, when students are being forewarned about pieces of literature that might be upsetting, that's seen as some horrible free speech violation. And really it's not, it's a pedagogical question, like what do you do? I mean, are, is it responsible to introduce students to literature without giving them some background as to what they're going to be reading? That's not you know a free speech issue is when someone's trying to stop you from speaking, you know, and that's really been lost. And a lot of times, I've just been doing the study about the University of California, Berkeley, during the Trump era, and looking very closely at right wing students, the Berkeley College Republicans, and finding that again and again they're making things free speech conflicts out of things that aren't really genuine free speech conflicts. Uh, so. In other words, I'd say there's almost this free speech hustle going on that makes it really hard to discern a genuine free speech issue from an issue that people are trying to make into a free speech issue because it it makes a good headline or it will attract attention to their organization. So you would
0: say, first of all, that free speech is obviously copious enough, sort mm -hmm. of a label, big umbrella, big enough that a lot of things can be fitted into it. Mm -hmm. When you're saying there's genuine speech issues Mm -hmm. when someone's speech is really suppressed or censored versus these other things but you're right the media picks it up and we have a free speech scandal controversy you know with regularity on college campuses. Yeah
1: and I think also I just want to say connected to that is I find a great deal of cynicism and hostility towards student activism and the media reflects that and middle-aged people, not all of them, but a lot of them do. Because I get called by reporters all the time and their premises are really very conservative on this. It's like, you know how they tell the athletes, what they told the basketball players, you know, shut up and play. You know she told, what was that, Lauren Gehren told that to... Shut to, up and dribble, she yeah, said. Yeah, and LeBron right, James right. came back that's and said, right.
0: I'm actually committed to building communities, to mm-hmm. develop education models, schools, I'm doing more than you've ever done. Right. So, right. so he came back strongly and said, I can do more than shut right. up and and, play.
1: and with students, it's shut up and study. Right. I think that's really what they think, you know, like that that students should be you know seen and not heard, their memories of the 60s are of these caricatures from the 60s, and so the first inclination, when you have student activism, is to find something that's wrong with it. So I'm this, about the media. Is that
0: different? I mean, was it not because mm-hmm. you've talked about sort of there's been a history for over 100 years in this country to sort of yeah. the middle-aged people saying, the crazy kids out of control and trying to yeah. change the status
1: quo. So what's different today when? Well, as a, there's actually a long tradition of that. It goes back. There's a book by Paula Fast about the 1920s called The Dand and the Beautiful. And it's a history that came out in the 70s of students, not really a political rebellion, but the cultural rebels of the 1920s. And even that was, I mean, the title of the book, The Damned, is that, I mean, it was going on with some modification of sexual mores and, 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 and loosening up somewhat of the Victorian morality. But it wasn't the case that there was, if you read what elders were saying, you know, they have this declension narrative, like everything's gone to hell, everything was great was when I was in school, kid, these kids today. And so, like, as if they were all having, you know, drunken orgies all the time and, and going wild listening to jazz music. And the thing was that actually when Paula Fast studied this, she found that, no, there's not, like, rampant promiscuity. There was more, a little more petting and there was, there, but intercourse was still still en route to marriage. And if you didn't go that route, you know, if you went out of that, you were sort of shunned. So norms have been changing, but if you looked at the media, so basically what, a lot of times they're talking more about themselves than what's going on on campus. Okay. Their anxiety is about change. And so you're right, that's a long trend. And I'm just saying what we see today when they make it look like you know campuses are all Stalinist boot camps where nobody can speak then you know, what you're stuck with is this, these really caricatures that reflect the anxieties of the elders more than what's going on on campus. And yeah. what's
0: flipped you've written about this, sort of, this is the 20s, and then in the 60s, the origins of the free speech movement. So you've written this biography of Mario mm-hmm. Savio, and mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about what was the impetus behind this? What was this, and which I think you agree was an incredibly beneficial revolutionary moment for American campuses? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, let me just say part of the background to that. I want to answer your question, but let me first give you a little bit of context. A lot of people today on the right will say free speech is more in danger today than any time in American history. In fact, George Will wrote that introduction to the Yale, that Woodward Report was reissued.
0: And he Which is it. the report from 1972, right. I believe, when right. Yale studies after its own free speech controversies and right. issues a report how to manage speech on campus.
1: That's right. And actually, it's not true that today is worse than ever. It was much worse during World War I. Uh, when It was basically the campuses were armed camps, and you, you couldn't even question the war. Even if you weren't enthusiastic enough about it, you could be fired, or during the MacArthur era. So the difference between now and then is most of the free speech violations, whether they're real or not, are coming from students who don't have much power. Whereas back in the, in the 20th century, the free speech violations were coming from the administration that did have power. And so that was what happened at Berkeley. You know, Berkeley from the nineteen thirties through nineteen sixty three, if you were a communist, you couldn't speak on campus. So meaning
0: the violations, meaning from the thirties till the sixties, the administration clamps down on faculty or students who have political opinions. Right. right?
1: Generally they were, you know, they were not really tolerant, especially if people on the left. Right. And actually, let me just say this too that the reason why right wing commentators think that this is all new is in the past it was people on the right or the center that was doing their pressing. Now that sort of their, their ox is being gorged, so they think this is new. Okay. It's not new. So, my point is look again, from 1935 to '63, if you were a communist, you couldn't speak on the birth of campus. And so, no student radical has the power to do any such thing today, nor do they have the power to fire or expel people. So to me, you know, like the, uh, look, I don't like free speech violations, but if you want to, if you want to understand what's going on, you can't exaggerate them. So anyway, what was happening at Berkeley in 64 was there had still been, basically you could not do political advocacy on the Berkeley campus. And that was in part because of the Red Scare from the 30s. And people know about the Red Scare in the 50s or right after World War I. There was also on the West Coast a Red Scare in 1934 in part because of the San Francisco General Strike okay. and also because of the End Poverty California Campaign of, of, up in Sinclair and the West Coast Waterfront Strike. That made a lot of people conservative think, oh, the revolution is coming, this is in the midst of the Great revolution The revolution, of the workers' revolution, right. That's basically, right. the socialist right. revolution. That's right. So, okay. so there was a real panic and that affected the business community and the regents of the University of California and they enacted these rules that, as the regents did, with the support of President Sproul, that you couldn't do political advocacy on campus.
0: Basically, the assumption was we'll keep politics out of the university, mm-hmm. and that is safer because people are here to study and learn. They're young; they don't quite know how their opinions are formed. So we should keep faculty out of this business, and the university should be this kind of zone where politics don't happen. Right, and that's
1: also you hit an important point that they're young. This is the era of in loco parentis, where the, the university had the authority over, the, like, in place of the parent. So they didn't think of students as citizens with rights; they thought them as really children who needed guidance. So in any case, what you have here was these regulations. At Berkeley, it was called the Sather Gate tradition. You know, Sather Gate is right, you know, on the the, the exit on the entrance. But that's the
0: gate to actually between Sproul Plaza and the next plaza over. So it's kind of the symbolic entry to campus. Right, but back then it was the actual entry. It was the actual entry before they
1: built that, you know, Student Union Building. That was now it's like that's mm -hmm. right. So you could do political advocacy on the sidewalk, but not inside. Not so think about that. There's more freedom of speech off campus because of the First Amendment than there is on campus. Because and, and part of it is they don't want to antagonize the right wing in the state legislature, you know. Which, by the way, was not crazy because you know in the fifties with the loyalty oath, there was some, there was like a sleeping you know tiger there. So it wasn't crazy, but just meant there wasn't there wasn't free speech. And so basically, but it's quite
0: interesting the history that actually universities were sort of sort of zones where we said we don't really deal with speech issues. We mm-hmm. just we just basically say this is a zone where all sorts of other things happen, which is flipped today because people right. now say university should be more speech right. even That's than right. on the sidewalk. Exactly. So just to illustrate the example, sure. on the Berkeley campus you couldn't do political speech, you could step off campus and demonstrate and right. whatever.
1: And then what happened in 64 was that the, because you know, they built the student union and that whole square plaza, now the, the free speech area was actually on a strip of sidewalk on Bancroft and Telegraph. It was called the Bancroft Strip. And in the summer of 64, Berkeley students were doing a lot of civil rights organizing including Mario was arrested in the Sheridan Palace sit-in. This is a big hotel. So that's well, a
0: hotel. There's a labor issue in. Them. Yeah, it's not in, in And he's s- a student at Cal Berkeley yeah, at this yeah, time, and engaged yeah. in sort of labor issues and. Sort right. Of well, this issue
1: was a, well, the issue in the South, remember, was about box oh. being able to be served at places like this at the lunch counters. Right. In the Bay Area, it was different. It was a hiring discrimination. Right. That you know, it's a big tourist area, and they wouldn't hire blacks except in very menial jobs in the hotels. Okay. So they had done protests about that, and also Auto Row, a whole string of anti-discrimination protests. This upset the employers and their buddies in the state legislature. And then what really sort of pushed it over the edge was in the summer of '64, Republicans were having their convention in the Cow Palace, which is like the Madison Square Garden of, of San Francisco. And Berkeley students came to protest against Barry Goldwater, who was going to be the nominee who was opposed to the Civil Rights Act. And they actually were organized on behalf of Governor Scranton of Pennsylvania, who was a moderate Republican, something that really doesn't exist today, kind of a liberal Republican. So there's a, was a Republican, Republican
0: convention happening right. in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and students are protesting one of the candidates. Right,
1: and so what happens is, there's a right-wing newspaper, back then it was a right-wing newspaper in Oakland called the Oakland Tribune, owned by Bill Nolan, who's a real right-winger in support of Goldwater. And so they send a reporter down to think about, how can these Berkeley students be organizing this protest when the campus is supposed to be nonpartisan? Right? And it turns out, they sent a reporter, his name was Carl over and down, and he found out that, you know, like a table like this, their tables, they had these little card tables that were student activists, where they did their organizing. It was on the Bancroft strip, but if you looked under the, Bancroft, under the tables, it said, property of the Regency University of California. You know, so basically, it was partially on campus. Right. And then the administration was afraid, this is going to explode. So they, what they did was, they said, OK, we're closing down the free speech area. Okay. That set off the whole explosion. And why? Partially because of the free speech issue, partially because Students were very involved in the black freedom movement, and they felt like Mario, he'd been recruited to do that civil rights work at the Sheridan Palace and that led him to Freedom Summer in Mississippi from that strip. So people felt that was an important part of their education and their, you know, that you could find out about any issue just by walking you know, walking through the entrance. Yeah. So now they close that so the down.
0: The university is sort of doing two things. It sort of wants to get rid of political speech because it's controversial. And it wants to protect itself, say we're going to be caught up in other social mm-hmm. movements. There's going to be, as you said, there's political parties, mm-hmm. employers, unions, mm-hmm. the civil rights movement. We want to stay out of all of this. Right. In some ways, so you could say it's kind of a defensible position for mm-hmm. a moment to mm-hmm. say let's just keep that off campus. Right. But you can keep ideas and people off campus. I guess these students are the ones who are bringing these ideas. Well,
1: they're also, see, they would, they, they put it differently than you. They would say, you have free speech on campus, but we don't have advocacy. Okay. Like you can talk about how bad racism is, but you can't organize an demonstration from the campus. Right, right, And if you think about that distinction, it's almost impossible to make that distinction. So you could say, the racism at the hotel is terrible, but then if you say, so let's have a picket there tomorrow, and that's not a speech act? Of course that's a speech act. Right. So it was really not a position that was defensible. It was really, though, you know, it was like this Faustian bargain that the university made to protect itself from the right wing.
0: And so what happens in 64 then? So, And so and how does Mario Sabio become the leader of this movement? Which yeah. I think he credits a lot of other people as well, but yeah. you talk yeah. quite well, a bit a, about yeah. what his own experience is yeah. and why he valued speech. Well,
1: it so. well, was a collective of the leadership, but he was the, the most famous orator of the movement and one of the key. He's sort of like the, the most famous leader of the movement. But, the reason why he emerged from it was a few things. One was, first of all, he was very viscerally involved with the history of free speech because he had a terrible stutter all through his life. And so, for him, when they named the struggle at Berkeley the Free Speech Movement, he said it was also about the free movement of my own speech. Wow. So, in a way, it's almost like you know that movie about the King. You know, the the King. Oh, the, yeah. the, just the, the King's speech. Right. That's right. Uh, cause,
0: because about being trained how to speak without a stutter. Right. Because
1: right, he forward. actually sort of found his voice through his activism. He was so outraged that he kind of lost that, not entirely, but there's still elements of it, but he was able to rise out of it. And the reason why he was so involved in it was he had just come back, he'd done that, he'd been active in the Bay Area Civil Rights Movement, and then over the summer, when he was in jail for the arrest at Sheridan Palace Hotel in the spring of 64, he heard about Freedom Summer from his cellmate, and he decided to apply, and he went there. Okay. And it was a very dramatic event in his life. He did voter registration work and taught in a freedom school, And that meant bringing black farm, the voter regiment, meant going down to a white-controlled town courthouse and having these African-American, elderly African-American farmers risking their lives to go down there to register to vote. And for him, like, seeing the courage of those black farmers, there was one incident that was especially powerful to him, that he went down, you see, when you bring people to register, you can't go in the room with them when they go in. So this elderly black farmer went in, and it's the sheriff's wife is the registrar. She says, what do you want, boy? What do you want? He says, I-, I want a radish, ma'am. That's how they said, the African-American farmer said it in that part of Mississippi. I-, I want a radish. She said, radish, what do you mean, boy? We don't got a radish here. And she knew what she wanted, And but she, and this is how Mario put it, she wanted to make him eat shit. She wanted to humiliate him. And Mario was standing there thinking like, you know, this farmer could lose his farm, he could lose his life for what he's doing. And so for him, it was like he felt like this was really you know, not some lark, this was really serious. And so when he came back to Berkeley in the fall after doing that organizing, and the administration tried to shut down the free speech area, which is where we're recruiting people to help in that struggle. It was like, no, 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 that's not just an abstraction. This is about like trying to, this is a place where you can involve students in trying to mobilize against the worst problem, the, the worst blight on American democracy. And
0: the worst blight on American democracy at this point is the denial of the vote. Right, in some right. ways, So voice and vote are very much linked, and that's so right. the democratic oh, yeah. participation and citizenship is, so That's it's exactly. an essential American right. Exactly. They're yeah, not exactly. doing a little sure. dispute about some issue of politics, but they're saying this is the most essential right, right of political participation right. for citizens.
1: And then, then what happened was the students tried initially, you know, people have stereotypes about the 60s. The first thing you do is you take over a building, you yeah. know. That's not how it worked. They couldn't believe that the university, and when I say they, I mean mostly it was led by the left and civil rights activists, but all, all the way to the Goldwater Republicans, because nobody could do political activism on them the way that they had done the ban. So they think, this is crazy. So they tried to meet with the dean. And it was very clear that she wasn't comfortable with the regulation, but she didn't have the power to change it. And so then after negotiations felt, they said, we're going to defy it. So they defied it, and that meant staffing a table like this. And you know what? They said, you know what? We're no longer going to accept being even on the Bancroft Strip. We're going to bring our tables right to the heart of the campus. We right? probably that that's that today, right, right? Cause if That's right. If, you could, if we're going to be free there, we want to be free everywhere. Yeah. And so then the first thing they did was they suspended... A bunch of students who were at those tables right. for violent, and then they'd suspend one person and another person take his place or her place. And so they were, the five who were being disciplined were supposed to go to the dean's office. This is September 30th, 1964. And instead of like just those five students, 500 showed up. Okay. and said, you meet with them, you meet with all of us, because we all did the same thing. Don't select them or punish them for something we all did.
0: But that's very powerful, that there's solidarity. Yeah. and Everybody was risking something. Yeah, These the right. students enrolled in mm-hmm. the oh, university. Yeah. They're risking their mm-hmm. entire education here at this
1: point. Right. So the deans wouldn't meet with the, all the students, so they sat in. That was the first sit-in. But then the next day things escalated, because what they did was they took some of the tables and put them even on the steps of Sprout Hall. And Jack Weinberg, a civil rights organizer, was staffing the court table and they knew he was a non-student so they arrested him. And when they went to arrest him, you know, Jack had done sit-ins all summer against discrimination, as I told you, in the Bay Area. And so what does he do? He goes like limp, like a sack of potatoes. Mm -hmm. And so they can't just sort of quickly get into the car. And so what happens is instead of being able to just drag him off quickly, it takes a little while and while he's doing it, people are saying, sit down, sit down. And they surrounded the police car, a nonviolent blockade. And Mario's role was he had been one of the key organizers, he took off his shoes so as not to damage the car and start using it as a platform or a podium. Quite famously, to explain so that. he stands on a car that's and he right. gives that big speech. And that is like so symbolic of the 60s, is liberty over order. You know, the police okay. car is a symbol of order and that's how it began. And it took, just to show you how, how deeply rooted these old restrictions were, it took a semester. It was basically a competition between the students and the administration to convince the faculty. Whoever the faculty would support, that would, they would win. And it took all semester and ultimately a huge occupation of the administration building that led to the biggest arrest in California history on December 2nd, and 3rd, 64. And then the administration attempting to have this big compromise without consulting the students. They had a big meeting in the Greek theater, you know, on the hills of Berkeley, and they didn't invite any student to speak. Imagine that. That This is all about student rights. And wow. those well, students I, have, I
0: have a vivid imagination. I can still picture something like that today, actually. So you think so the faculty are kind of in between, and, this, yeah. and, this, and the administration is trying to say, if the faculty side with us, Yeah. there's another calculation always in universities, these students will graduate and leave. Right. There's a sense, will this actually be a... Will there be any longevity, or is this going to be mm-hmm. sustainable, or are they just going to be agitated for a while? Then there's winter break; they sure. come back, and it's all gone. Sure. So there was a bit of hope that social yeah. movements peter out. Yeah.
1: Oh, in fact, you're right that the, the the disciplinary actions that led to the sit-in were given out. The they were the letters were sent over Thanksgiving break. Yeah. So they hoped they thought you're exactly right. That's how they thought about it. Anyway, this theater. It was the idea was the administration felt like they were losing the support of the faculty because the faculty were upset about their students being arrested. So they tried to. Organized this meeting where they set up something new to avoid the academic senate. It was like a, a new council of department chairmen. Okay. Right. It was a really whole. it's a whole sort of phony manipulation. And Mario, the one to speak at the meeting, and they wouldn't let him. So Mario waited until the meeting was over, and then slowly started walking to the platform. And just as he gets to the podium, and by the way, it didn't disrupt anybody else's speech, but just as he's about to take a breath to speak, he's grabbed away by two police officers and dragged away by his tie. And by the way, the fact that he's wearing a tie tells you something about that at the time. So that then really upset the faculty because here it is right in front of you, a student, the key spokesperson for the free speech movement is being gagged by two cops. And it led to a lot of outrage. And so the next day, in part because of the mass arrest and because of this Greek theater, a debacle, or some people call it the tragedy of the Greek, the faculty voted by seven to one to back the basic free speech movement demand, okay. which was that the content of speech should not be regulated by the university. Now let me just say one other thing about the free speech movement, because sometimes reporters know enough about that when they come to me to then say, oh, look at the students in the 60s, they supported free speech, unlike these snowflakes today. Right. And I just want to say that there's a lot of, and by the way, I always tell them that it's that's simplistic, and it never ends up in their stories, you know, because that's they have their... Premise here, And let me tell you what's different. The free speech issue in 64, I mean, it was a hard struggle, but it was a simple issue. It was freedom of speech versus unfreedom, right? Either students have a right to speak or they don't. Later on, the issues became, in the 60s became much more complicated. I'll just give you an example. During the anti-war movement, there was an issue about Dow Chemical. Dow Chemical manufactured napalm. And students were really horrified when they saw the photographs of children who had been horribly burned by napalm. And so beginning in 67, well actually this is a Wisconsin, first huge confrontation about it. It's the first time tear gas was used against college students in the 60s. Students were protesting. They didn't want to have Dow Chemical recruiters hire people because they considered this a war crime, right? I mean, first they protested, but then they were more militant and they blockaded. And there was like a police riot, a bunch of students were injured, tear gas was used to disperse the students. But you see, there was the choice, free speech versus war crime. And Howard Zinn wrote out a pamphlet, about this when it came to Boston University where he was teaching, it was called Dao Shall Not Kill, you know? Okay. And it raised that same issue. He said that basically you're, you're making a citizen's arrest of criminal activity.
0: And why know? is this movement being driven by students and not faculty? Mm-hmm. Because today when you you're mm-hmm. right to say there's a kind of weird distortion or somehow mm-hmm. students are pitted on the other side right. or something like that or character rights mm-hmm. like that. Where are faculty now in the sixties through this? You said mm-hmm. seven to one they vote to right. say we're gonna we actually think our students should have the right to Organize and mm-hmm. actually have political expression on campus, right? Mm-hmm. Where faculty then through the 60s and 70s? No?
1: Well, the faculty, I would say, it took a while, like at Berkeley in 64, it took a while for the faculty to support the free speech movement. I mean, it took a whole semester to win them over. And some didn't even, it wasn't necessarily that they supported the, the issue, they were tired of all the disruptions. Right. You know, that was it. Faculty are harder to get involved. I mean, faculty have their own interests, their own research, And they mostly, you know, they just don't want, they want the place to function. I don't say, I mean, everybody. There are usually a small group. At Berkeley Berkeley in 64, was called the Committee of 200, mostly young, untenured faculty, with some who had been through the loyalty oath, some older ones, who were basically trying to support the basic political demand. But they very rarely would do civil disobedience. They have a much more, they have a much sort of closer relationship with the administration. Because so, they're there long term.
0: And then how yeah. does this issue get framed politically? You've talked about this, how Reagan uses this. Mm-hmm. And I've had another mm-hmm. professor from Berkeley, Ian Haney-Lopez, mm-hmm. who talked about how Reagan uses the mm-hmm. free speech movement yeah. as a political point in his campaign for governor of California. Right,
1: right. Oh, how Reagan used it? Well, Reagan made a caricature of it. Basically, by the way, the majority – and this comes back to the point we raised earlier about how middle-aged people are, are hostile to student protests. Look, the sit-in movement, majority of Americans didn't approve that. Freedom riders, majority of Americans didn't Okay, that. I want to
0: underscore sure. this. So I've talked about this in a couple other podcasts yeah. with Echo Yanka last yeah. week. The majority of Americans are not supporting things that today we think right. achieve the greatest freedoms and sure. guaranteed legal equality. So what was not supported by the majority of Americans? Okay,
1: it's the sit-in movement?
0: Yes. The Freedom Rides yes. and the Free Speech Movement. So student movement is basically protests in the South to integrate mm-hmm. establishments, hotels, restaurants, right. etc. Mm-hmm. The, the voting
1: registration, these are Freedom rights. No, the Freedom Rides was about being able to desegregate transportation. 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 Yeah. And they were viewed as troublemakers by a lot of people. And the, the Free Speech Movement at Berkeley, close to 70% of the electorate opposed the Free Speech Movement. Because well, you could say, well, that's weird. Don't they support Free Speech? For them, it wasn't about free speech. The issue was that the students were being disruptive. That's fascinating. If you
0: think about that, that 70% of the people were against what's called the free speech movement. And today we have ultra-conservatives who are saying the end of freedom of speech in America. It's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah. oh yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) But I'll tell you that part of it was that they, and Reagan ran saying, oh, like people saying the riots in Berkeley. It was just coming out of this Cold War era, there was such conservatism. That students who were doing civil disobedience was almost entirely nonviolent, but they're saying the riots at Berkeley, and that's because again, you know, shut up and study. That's the perspective. But I also want to say that just another example. We talked about the choice between free speech and you know, stopping the war crimes. Right. In the spring of sixty spring semester after the free speech movement, there was something called the obscenity controversy, which is sometimes wrongly referred to as the filthy speech movement. I don't know if you know about that, but what happened with that was that, uh, and I use this as an example to, to kind of straighten out these reporters that not everybody was a great civil libertarian on the, on the student body. The issue there was a street poet named John Thompson had just, in, the, in March 65, came onto in front of the student building at Sprout Plaza with a sign saying, fuck, right? And he was arrested, and some of the students supporting him were arrested. And then a smaller group of students were then, they had some rallies to try to support him. But the free speech movement was kind of split on this because they thought it was irresponsible, like they wanted to stop, they were interested in stopping the war and fighting racism, and what is this stuff about fuck? Even though there is a real free speech issue like Lenny Bruce and Allen Ginsberg, it is a serious issue, but the majority of students at Berkeley did not, and Mario did try to rally people, but the majority of students would not rally for that cause because they were not pure civil libertarians. They had been raised with a strong taboo against using obscene speech. So eventually, like Art Goldberg, who was the one person in the free speech movement who was helping to lead this early on, he got expelled for this. And they tried to lead a resistance movement, and it failed. So my point is, to make it like the 60 students were all like, yeah, we're totally free speech, like that, like the ACLU was all at all times, and that today's students are all anti-free speech, is very simplistic.
0: Say something else about Mario Savio's commitment. You talked about how Berkeley was going to construct a monument, which hasn't been built. They have a freedom of speech movement cafe now. Mm. This was supposed to contain two quotes. Mm-hmm. One is kind of freedom of speech is the most ennobling and most human. Oh, Diogenes.
1: Diogenes. Yeah. freedom of speech is the most, the most beautiful thing in the world. The
0: most beautiful thing in the world. And then he also wanted to put something on say, but it comes with great responsibility. Yeah, so yeah. He
1: had, a, he, wanted to t- he had this aphibic oath yes. about, you know, that we're not going to... He, he wanted, you know, okay, look, I'll tell you what this... Well, I, I guess you don't need the whole story of the monument proposal. But the basic thing was that he, he had this Dogenes quote that said how beautiful free speech was, and on the other hand, he had this, this aphibic oath that he wanted students, the speakers to look at that's saying that I won't bring disgrace upon this our university in which I'm privileged to speak. So but so underscore this again. Yeah.
0: So he meant to say two things at once. So first well, is ennobling yeah, and that was right.
1: personally deeply... Well, important. right. Let, just to think about it this way. At the victory rally of the speech movement in December 9, 64, Mario said something at the time when I first started doing my biography, I thought, wow, this is conservative. I don't understand that. And now I do. But he said that Um, you know, we were asking that there be no restrictions on speech, save those provided by the courts. And that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. He said, now for the first time, we have to think about being responsible because now we have the freedom within which to be irresponsible. And I'm confident that the students and the faculty, the University of California, will exercise their freedom with the same responsibility that they've shown in winning their freedom.
0: So as a person, you have this kind of confidence, and people will actually
1: not abuse this freedom to destroy the institution they're part of. That's right, but he was emphasizing, and this is different than people's caricatures about the 60s. Anything goes. Right. No, he's saying that you are. And by the way, Mario, despite the fact that he supported, you know, eventually he wanted to protect this free speech right, you know, obscene speech. He never used obscene speech in any of his speeches. You know, he felt like you know that with freedom comes responsibility, and that's what's been lost today in a lot of this right wing discourse with people like Mario Yiannopoulos who are totally irresponsible. You know, who, who has a statement out there, uh, what, just last week, regretting that the bombs that were sent to the former presidents and Trump's critics didn't detonate. So the idea was, you know, and that's what I think is missing here, that rights are, are important, but so is responsibility. And he wasn't saying that I'm gonna force you to be responsible, he wanted students to consider it themselves. Right. And that, I did a study of the early Trump era on the right-wing students, they don't get into that at all. But that's an yeah.
0: interesting consideration to think he wouldn't enforce that. So he wouldn't tell you, you can't say that. But he kind of appeal to you, and then he would appeal to the community, say, Robbie, you're being totally irresponsible. Right, he's he abusing that, all yeah, of our yeah, rights yeah. to advance something here. And it's right. actually not helpful, not beneficial, not constructive, whatever criteria you want to use. So he's appealing to the community to the develop people. some standards, that's right. that's which right. are not laws, not no, but norms. Right, that's right.
1: And I think he thought that he had enough respect for the the community, they that he thought people would abide by that. And if they didn't, then they wouldn't get support. Right. So that whole part of this conversation is gone. But
0: I think what's yeah. important is to sort of say it was animated by this kind of belief and faith and that people will mm. ultimately actually do the right thing and right. On the yeah. right side yeah. of things. And yeah. you're saying you're linking it also to it was fighting against war crimes, against unjust wars, against racism, against right. the greatest compromises or kind of infractions on American democracy. Yeah. This is what it's born out of. Right, that's right. And, and then it goes today to where does it go? Why, yeah. does it, why is it flipped in a way? Well,
1: there's a few things I want to say. First of all, just to finish this line of thinking, that today it's not like, well, free speech, uh, the, the students don't believe in free speech. I think they do, but there are other values that compete with it. That is fighting bigotry, racism, homophobia, transphobia, you know, that the students are brought up, you know, in a different world that's saying that we want to have a respectful community. And so, you know, they're brought up not to bully, you know, not to say things that are racist or homophobic or, and then you come, or misogynist and you come to campus and all of a sudden, Milo Annapolis has a carte blanche. So I think the point is, it's not like, you know, that we're going to condescend the students, oh, they don't believe in freedom. No, they're trying to think about, well, where does freedom fit in versus other values? And I'm saying that's the same thing with the anti-war movement. It's like we want freedom, but also we're also concerned with these other issues. In other words, free speech is an important value, but it's not the only important value that people are concerned with. Well, that's interesting. Right. I
0: mean, I've had so many conversations with constitutional scholars mm-hmm. and I sort of going to a language of balancing or something. And I say, OK, equality is sort of the bedrock principle mm-hmm. of America. And mm-hmm. people say to me, no, 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 the bedrock principle of America, the lodestar, that is free speech. Mm-hmm. It overrides everything. This is not found in American jurisprudence and the yeah. founding fathers. No documents. It's kind of become this in a way, and it's yeah. become a
1: tool to undo other things. Well, it's not. First of all, it's always. It depends on who you talk to. But yeah. <laughs> there's always been. Like, if you look at that film, the War at Home, that shows the organizers of the protest against uh, the SDS, org- Students for Democratic <laughs> Socialism, organizers said sarcastically, "Yeah, free speech for murderers." You know, they were trying to stop a war that was killing you know millions of people. Right. So. I think there isn't. You know, it is problematic because you need the freedom too in order to be to do your anti-organizing. So I'm not saying they had it totally right, but I'm just saying we need to be respectful or try to understand rather than caricature people who are having these dilemmas about you know where does free speech in versus other important competing goods. And you're okay. saying the history of this particular
0: movement in America from the beginning, there are other goods that people take into consideration.
1: Yeah, yeah. but I would just say that usually in the history of America, and I don't think students really understand that today, mostly people who are fighting for things that people on the left think of were good, where well, they were the ones being suppressed. So when students today, you know, when you talk about this issue about can we let somebody from the right, far right speak, the assumption is the university will do its right. So you give the authority for the administration, they'll try to keep somebody who's awful off. But you know, you could have someone like Trump taking over, who forces the university not to let people who think Black Lives Matter is a hate, hateful organization. You know, so it's really complicated. But I'm just what I'm saying to you is that, I don't think that it's, it does anybody any good, A, to exaggerate the number of free speech conflicts, or B, to condescend the students and make it like they don't care about free speech, or, and C, to make believe that things that aren't free speech conflicts are. And can, can I give you some, one example of that? Because I mean, I've studied this closely at Berkeley. The Ann Coulter affair last, uh, in the spring of 2017. Here's what happened. After the Minneapolis thing happened, you know, the riot happened. They got this sort of, I think, this kind of idea from Trump who did this really outrageous tweet that claimed that Berkeley had suppressed speech and was violent and, you know, was threatening to take away their federal funds. The university had allowed Annapolis to speak. They didn't stop him, And the university did not promote violence. It was invaded by 150 anarchists who were trying to disrupt the speech. So it was a big distortion. The university canceled the speech because they didn't want anybody to get killed. There was a riot. And there had been someone killed at the University of Washington a right. week and a half earlier. Right. So here's the point, that the university is being accused of cancelling this by the right wing because of, like, as if they want to suppress conservative speech, when that wasn't what happened at all. But then the Berkeley College Republicans thought, you know, got, got, took this as a symbol, because, you know, by the way, they started wearing t-shirts, no federal funding, like approving of what Trump had said. That was part of the tweet. You know, if you don't, you're not supporting our free speech, therefore, maybe we should take all your funding.
0: I mean, I looked at this tweet and sort of this whole controversy before we get to what then happens with their sure. Coulter. Mm-hmm. It's very severe that the U.S. president threatens whatever mm-hmm. powers he has, mm-hmm. and the Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the same thing, we mm-hmm. may want to consider removing federal funding. Right. So is the university now put in a position to be defensive about this and mm-hmm. say, oh, you're right, we maybe didn't honor free speech, which is, as you said, not factual, mm-hmm. a distortion. And that, I thought, should alarm every single person in America if higher education is being threatened because of someone's opinion in an office that has power. Oh, right. So that's, that's it's, a, very, you know, it's a huge threat. It's right. been a threat before, and also there's been systematic unfunding of higher education. But it's a pretty serious thing. Well, to Nixon raise. did it.
1: Nixon tried to do it. And, but he at least, because he's a lawyer, he, tried to, he, was, he knows it's unlawful. He tried to do it privately. Actually, there's a book by Mike Konkowitz, who teach, who's at the Atonement Library, about moderate, even some conservative Republicans wouldn't do it. It's basically violating contracts. It's blaming people. You know, the way he did it, this is how crazy it was with Nixon. MIT, which was the big defense contract, the biggest one in the whole country, Nixon was angry at the anti-war protesters there. Now, the anti-war protesters are totally different. Forget about the morality of who's right. They're totally different than people who are doing defense contracting. You want to take away the defense contractors because it's an anti-war protest? You know, that's so You know it's so crazy. But he was doing that privately. Whereas right. Trump is all unpublic public right. right. So it's like, you know, also, a lot of times the right is claiming to be for freedom of expression, but really is a repressive side. You know, part of this isn't, oh, you can't heckle, you can't you know, obviously you can't riot, but the idea is that, you know, I think that there is, you know, there's kind of a dishonest thing about what's going on here. You know, that you want to, they wanna get these, this far right presence on campus and they make it like they're great free speech champions. It's a real distortion. How does the
0: university get itself into this dilemma that they bring these firebrand speakers who have really very little qualification besides selling a lot of books, which is a thing in the world, but it's not necessarily a qualification. And then two things. There are thousands and thousands of events on a campus such as Berkeley every year that happen routinely, no problem, no free speech is violated. Secondly, people are excluded routinely every single day from being invited. If you're not qualified, you're not gonna give a lecture in the physics department, Mm -hmm. in the law school, Mm -hmm. in in the art program, but somehow these cases have been characterized as if free speech has ended everywhere. Mm. So is this, had there been moments before in history people have said, this is the end of free speech, or is this different under Trump now? And Why do you think this is such a pervasive story in the media?
1: Well, I think because first of all, the right has gotten much crazier. You know, you wouldn't have speakers. I mean, like, let's wind things up a bit. You know, you go back to Young Americans for Freedom in the 60s. You know, I wasn't fond of that organization, but they were actually, interested in engaging you in debate. Whereas this is really more assaultive. You know, it's like, can you, how many different groups and the left can you attack at the same time to make them furious? So there really wasn't a case where you had speakers coming to campus who was there to assault people's sensibilities the way that's happening today. So I think that's something new. I mean, the right, I think, in the country, in the United States is now flirting with fascism. And that was not really true in terms of campus conservatism. I mean, that was, there was some of that off campus, but usually not so much on campus in terms of the the, the the students. So that's what's different about it. I also think, by the way, that you can ask why this is happening. Partially, it's Trump's success and that model, but partially it's the fact that the right was not successful. Like at Berkeley, could bring all kinds of right wing speakers. You, know, you get like ten people or something. Right. So this is a way for them to get headlines to make. To make all, and also it's a token of their alienation from the liberal university. So why did the media participate in this? I've actually
0: been kind of a bit perplexed because I think a lot of people in the media, right, went to university and college mm-hmm. and somehow still get it completely wrong. I really think they get it pretty much wrong when they think, oh, free speech has ended, and they make this simplistic idea: it's free speech on one side, which is absolute, which the law is never recognized as such, but let's say it's absolute, mm-hmm. and if a conservative firebrand doesn't come at the end of free speech. Mm-hmm. Why does this story have such, and I wonder whether behind it is a larger concern about academia, about mm-hmm. expertise, about knowledge, yeah. and this is getting like a Trojan horse into yeah.
1: the university to say. Well, there's a few parts to it. First of all, there are sometimes free speech violations, like the riot by the Antifa was a free speech violation. So they have something there that's true, but also there's a lot of hostility to the university on the part of liberals, as, I mean, some liberals as well as the right, you know, that's if they PC, Stalinist boot camps. That this fits right with that narrative. And this it, for Berkeley, it's like it's like catnip to the media. Oh, the home of the free speech movement is trampling free speech. Right. That's irresistible, not just to the right, but to people who come from the Washington Post who don't do their homework and don't actually find out what's happened. I'll give you the cool thing as an example, because it's a beautiful example. Once they found out that the Indianapolis thing could get them, the Berkeley College Republicans, could get them all this mileage, then they, they're going to try and really trash the university's free speech record. Just saying, oh, all these liberal hypocrites. University is not really a center of free speech. This is all bogus. And so what do they do? <clears throat> they invite Ann Coulter, they announce that as the Berkeley College Republicans in late March announced, we're bringing Ann Coulter last week of classes to speak about immigration. And you know, she's a raving nativist, you know, right. just an extreme nativist, right? And by the way, and this is a campus community that's very diverse, has undocumented students, and a big immigrant community, very progressive. But the point is, in Berkeley, just the logistics of this, There's over a thousand student organizations, and they have something else on campus, which you'll be surprised to hear, they have classes. Right. So there aren't there aren't a lot of large lecture halls, already, you know, like if I say I'm bringing Uli to come to NYU on X date and then there's no room available and I haven't checked. through the room, I can get
0: then, the ACLU to sue you. Right. right? That's right. You say
1: you're, you don't want Uli because he doesn't, you know, he, whatever, because his position on free speech is, is out of the norm or something. So right. it's really you're trying to get Uli. And that's what they did. Basically, they didn't talk to the administration. And by the way, the administration, because of the Milo riot, had a responsibility to make sure that when they bring speakers that they could be in a place that's protected. And so basically, it was totally phony. They say, oh, she was canceled. She wasn't canceled. She was never scheduled. And then they offered her, listen to this, they offered her, this is last week classes, you can come speak the next week, which is, you know, Berkeley Dead Week, which is where people are studying for their exams. And she tweets in capital letters, no classes then, I'm not coming, as if no, where are the students there at the beach? they're all there studying for their finals and they have more time because there's no classes going on right and so basically what does she have here she had free speech martyrdom and a PR bonanza she had nothing to say anyway nothing new to say anyway so what I'm saying is like they just it's a total setup, you know where they made the university look like it's suppressing speech when it's not so these are kind of
0: on some level you could say these are just games it's the media it's spectacle this is Mm -hmm. a circus act Mm -hmm. but it's more serious than that there's something behind it and I think what's kind of what I've really tried to get to, and that's why I've had you know conversations with students on this podcast to sort of say what really happens to students in this? And I've mm-hmm. I've talked to students who've become mm-hmm. engaged mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. try to do counter-events, not protests, not no. riots, mm-hmm. not demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And that we're trying to program something <coughs> that is it speaks to other values, and it's hard on them. Mm-hmm. And I've been surprised, what you said earlier, that this kind of you know, middle-aged reaction at mm-hmm. the students, because I always thought, well, the university exists principally for the students. So mm-hmm. if the students, it's not doing well for the students, we should listen to the students. But there's more at stake than just Ann Coulter getting another sure. PR sure. moment out of sure. this, sure. which she generates every other day by right. being outrageous. Right. Yeah. And I, I feel sorry that the university allows itself to be used on this. She, yeah. can, you know, she has some, um, a few other platforms. Which <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's more serious. There's something Well, else. I think there's
1: an issue here about the there isn't a lot of support for the university. I mean, think about it. The right thinks it's it's a left wing, you know, it's it's like a cultural fifth column. Some, Meaning what? What are the first four columns again? Remind well, me. <laughs> well, the, you know, the idea is that we are everything they hate is being generated by the university. Diversity, you know, support for you know, right. kind of questioning authority, all kinds of things that drive the right crazy, that's what they see the university is doing. And so
0: all of scientific research, history, economics, philosophy, all these other things they also love and want to keep and uphold, they're also in the university. Well, that, so well They only see, see the see, kind they of talk, leftist age. They never,
1: they never this is a funny part too. You're raising an important point here. Berkeley really has become like a STEM campus, right? And they don't think about it, but the right doesn't think about Berkeley that way. You know, basically, like I was out there in 2014 because my Savio book was used for the Common Reading Program out there. And so I was going to all these classes. Every lecture hall I went to was one that wasn't there when I was at Berkeley in the 80s. And they all were STEM lecture halls, right? right? But the notion is that it's basically, you know, a left-wing campus. Right. And so it's a big caricature. So I think that's part of it. Uh, and by the way, this is another issue, is that, and Niels Gilman, the assistant to the chancellor of uh, Dirks out there, spoke about this, that you have very few people outside the university defending the university. People from the right think this is PC, this is the cultural And this is a problem because yeah.
0: you would think if it's a STEM campus, let's say, that's a good development or it's a neutral development, you would think so many incredibly important discoveries for everybody are made on in universities <clears throat> right. actually at a very yeah. low cost for society right. in a way that right. people are doing research yeah. and generating knowledge sure. and actually is beneficial to society. So why don't we have that story and instead we have a few, you know, fringe elements in the a, in a comparative literature department or something like that yeah. or radical Marxists. Well, because they're
1: not the ones you're getting on the mass media, uh, you know, like especially Fox News. And I think, by the way, in a surprising way, the right-wing blogosphere and, and media shapes what a lot of mainstream media mm-hmm. writes about the university. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't a story that they can bash the university on, they're very, very rarely talking. I mean, I know this because on the eve of the, my, the second, the, when Milo was invited back, they expected all this trouble, and there wasn't any. I was invited as a guest on Fox News, and then when it went off without a hitch, you know, they canceled it. Right. If they can't right. bash the university, they're not interested in it. So what do you think about this
0: advice people give a lot to say, Oh, if someone like that comes, just ignore it, mm-hmm. don't talk about mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. don't show up. Mm-hmm. And then students are saying to me, Well, we're a bit ambivalent about this because being told not to come to class today mm-hmm. fulfills the point of these people who don't want mm-hmm. me to be in class yeah. today. So yes. this is my university and I'm being told not to come today. So mm-hmm. how do you think people the university should respond to these when they become the stage for these cultural conversations, well,
1: I think first of all, I mean just to, just to give you an example, like first of all, I don't think the university should allow a speaking event to disrupt the whole university. Like what happened at Berkeley was the Chancellor, Chris, wanted to have it up on, on Lawrence Hall of Science, you know, away, and the lawyer said no, you have to give people access to the central campus. And I would just say, we're gonna put them up there because we don't want to disrupt In other words, like you shouldn't subordinate the educational mission of the university to making the political circus. So I think you know I think this has to be put that's some pushback you can't let you know this is my perspective you can't let this particular reading of the first amendment dictate you know, everything you do. And by the way, the settlement on the free speech movement was, you don't regulate the content of speech, but that's subject to time, place, and manner. You're not right. supposed to disrupt the educational mission of the university. And
0: this is important, what you're saying, that, that do not disrupt the educational mission. The courts have always recognized, that. Mm-hmm. the courts have actually mm-hmm. always recognized that the university has a right to decide how it does its business, yeah. and it should not allow things to interfere with that. So time, place, manner, restrictions are possible.
1: Yeah, so I would I would argue that, I would say, okay, you want to have your, your right, far right rally, mm-hmm. Yeah, you can have it, but you can have it over there in a place that you're not going to disrupt the rest of the What's university.
0: What's interesting to me is I've thought about this a lot, so why don't they just rent a hall down the road or cross Bancroft and go to the other side? Because they want they the want legitimation the platform. and the platform. And yeah, I think they, this yeah, is an I'm important sure, consideration sure. that the students yeah. are fully aware. We are pawns in this game right, right, for people right. to, to use. And That's right. the university is actually not a neutral player. Right. The only thing
1: I would say is that, and sometimes students aren't very smart about this piece, is that if you disrupt this talk, then the issue is no longer Milo Yiannopoulos' bigotry, now the issue is free speech. He wants that. You know, On the eve of his second appearance at Berkeley, he told Playboy, a magazine interview, that you know, hopefully the real challenge is to have another Berkeley, meaning another riot. And hopefully uh, God will smile on us, Antifa will riot, I can sell 100,000 copies of my book and, and they can burn down the university. Now, now to me, what that says is that for him, that riot was like the high point of a celebrity. And so I think you have to really think about, not just morally and ethically, but also strategically, is what you're doing empowering someone like that. You know, it's almost like people are so set off by the things that he's done. I understand why, but I can tell you that when there was the riot, that really benefited him. When he came back in the fall, Dan Mogulov, the spokesman, called yes. the most expensive photo op in Cal's history. What did he do? They spent a million dollars in security for the guy. He comes and he speaks for 15 minutes, says a prayer, sings a star-pickle banner, and then leaves and then lies about it, saying he left because a police right. officer right. told him he was in danger. And no police officer. Op- it's all on tape. No police officer. So how officer do we him.
0: counter this? That he lies about it. These are not facts. You said the college Republicans make mm. up a story mm. how uh, someone else's speech was not you know, welcome or not supported by the university, which is just not factual. Mm. How do you get these stories out to correct this narrative? How do you think this, in this media landscape today, and sort of as you yeah. know, like it blows up on Twitter, and then it gets bigger yeah. than anything Well, else. I would say,
1: I would, I would take it a step further than that. I don't think, before it even gets to the media, I think the university has to do a better job of orienting its students. Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of what happened with these right-wing students, they're very alienated. They are being influenced by these off-campus, You know, and by the way, you know, in the 60s, you say, oh, it's Moscow goal that's, that's, that's determining the new left, but that was mostly baloney. This is not baloney. You have the Young America's Foundation, sixty million dollar foundation, who paid for Ann Coulter. It provides the lawyers to sue the university. You know, so what I'm saying is that I think that the university could do a better job of trying to educate their students, so they don't want to bring someone like Mon- Ann So they that
0: comes run. back to Mario Sabio mm-hmm. in some ways, is saying like, even your college Republicans, and I think the Commission on Free Speech now at Berkeley, which was Jay Wallace and Putin's Carter, where the co right? Yeah, I interviewed they the said Kampel, the yeah. students should actually. Be advised to think about and actually explain who they're inviting. They said we're not right. going to restrict oh, them, exactly. we're not going to censor right. them, but at least you should be able right. to, to yeah. say that was good. we're inviting yeah. these people. Yeah. As you pointed yeah. out, if they are just inviting somebody for a spectacle, then maybe they should be made to reflect for a
1: moment. Well, on how they're to... supposed to be. They're supposed to say how this serves the purposes of the university. It's, right. it's community principles. And I think that's good. In other words, I think here's what happened historically, just so you understand my take on this, is that once a local parenthesis was abolished in the 60s, right, that then freed the university. Oh, we don't need to deal the students, we don't need to police their lives and all that. It's your problem, right? And so basically, there's, they have laissez-faire. And that's good in terms of freedom, but not in terms of responsibility. Right. So like at UCLA, where they did have an advisor, like a conservative professor, who had a relationship right. with the Republicans? They did. They decided not to bring Malinopoulos after the talk because so, the
0: faculty advisor probably didn't want to risk his reputation and name and said, "Actually, I really don't have anything to say in favor of this invitation." Right? He well, he just said it that basically, you sense. know,
1: this is not a really, legi- right. you know, not a credible conservative speaker. Right. Right. Let's get speakers who are going to right. are going to right. engage right. people, not just antagonize people. So there was nobody at Berkeley, and people tried, by the way, but there's nobody at Berkeley who had that relationship with the Berkeley College Republicans. Let me ask you one
0: other question sort of historically over the last two years. So I've thought a lot, and I've interviewed people at the University of Virginia about Mm -hmm. Charlottesville, Mm -hmm. which really taught me an enormous amount. For Mm -hmm. them, this was their Mm 9-11. This has transformed the city, they Mm -hmm. haven't recovered, Mm -hmm. it has changed the university and the city. And then we've had other events, so it sort of shifted this, and I think we're in a slightly different place from two years ago. Mm -hmm. I think people are no longer looking at this and saying, oh, there's no free speech because someone didn't come. thinking. This is about violence. This is about normalizing hate speech. This is about incitement. Yeah. Do you? Where do you think we are now?
1: And do... well, I think, for example, just the parallel to Charlottesville is that the issue, you know, like when yanapolis was canceled here the other day, or you know, for safety at NYU, he says, "Oh, poor gay little me," as if I'm, you know, I'm so weak. I'm just here to speak my speech, but and it's not so simple, and he knows it's not. Is that he attracts? very far, far right-wing people to campus, like white supremacists to campus, and some of them are violent. So it's not simply a question of like, what the speaker is saying in the speech, it's what does that event turn the campus into? And so a lot of the students were focusing. They felt like, this is insulting. I don't care what he said. It's not that I can't take diverse point of view. Right. It's that this was said by an Asian-American vice president of the student government at Berkeley during one of the free speech forums that Chancellor Christ organized. He said, Look, it's insulting. For You don't think we can deal with the diverse points of view? That's not the point. It's my friends who are African-American Latino who are afraid to walk on the plaza on their campus because this event has drawn these folks on. You know, so and we have a
0: history of knowing there have been attacks, there has been violence, there have been... There was street violence violence in the right. summer,
1: not just at Charlottesville, there were street fights in Berkeley between the Antifa on the left and these white supremacist slash Nazis on the right. But to me, it always
0: takes like there's a kind of tension between kind of an historical and cultural awareness of the context that this has happened versus mm-hmm. this kind of abstraction in the law of absolute neutrality, yeah. as if we don't know what these statements mean. Which yeah. is this kind of legal trick yeah. to say, yeah, we have, yeah. and then students is saying, no, we know what happens. Yeah. yeah,
1: and there's a case where, you know, my advice to the university would be, if you have to bring someone like this in, just make sure it's in this place that you choose that's not going to disrupt the university. As I said, that was, a chance that was in the chancellor's first inclination, but the lawyers you know, it's this way of like interpreting the First Amendment, like weaponizing the First Amendment. So universities, you know, Bob Post from uh, you know the former dean of the Yale Law School. Said, he's, he's on the podcast. I oh, have yeah. him here. Yeah. He actually
0: says this is a total confusion yeah, to use the First Amendment for academic questions. Yeah, he says
1: that. Look, the, I think one of his best lines is that he spoke to my teachers' group. The campus is not a park. You know, in other words, like it's or it's not Madison Square Garden. It's an educational institution with a mission. If this is not contributing to the educational mission of the university, in fact, if it's disrupting it then we have to rethink it. And I wouldn't think that means to ban people, but it might mean to, you know, to have them at a time and a place that is not going to disrupt the university. And that's what they did at Berkeley with their major events policy. And how did the Young America's Foundation respond the right way? They sued the university. Right. You know, the university is trying to prevent another riot, and they make it like, oh, you're oppressing. And one thing I said about this, by the way, is that the free speech movement was a free speech movement. It wasn't a time and place movement. You know, they're making it like, you know, if you don't give us exactly the venue that we want at the time that we want it, you're denying our free speech right. If you gave the Berkeley students in 64 Zellerbach Auditorium for their speakers or some other big hall that was maybe a little bit of ways, they would not be saying, you're violating our free but speech But what you're saying
0: anymore. is as if these kind of events are set up in order to find a problem Mm -hmm. and the university goes out of its way and says we're going to give you zeller back we're going to give you you know lawrence the labs we're going to give you a great space and they're saying that is not right this is Mm -hmm. not the right day this Mm -hmm. is not the right Right. venue this is not the right location in some ways they're trying to actually find a problem where there may be no problem exactly it's
1: a free look you could not have a more pro-free speech administration and i say this you know it's bizarre to me if you think about it because my histories have been mostly critical of administrations because usually they're not pro-free speech but Carol Christ, and also Dirks, but particularly Carol Christ, when she came in to become chancellor- Who is the chancellor at UC right, so Berkeley right now? She came right. in saying, her first year is going to be free speech year. Absolutely. And yes. free speech is who we are. And then she gives the Berkeley College Republicans for Ben Shapiro Zerobach Auditorium, which is worth $13,000 as rental, and pays a $1,000,000 for secure, almost $800,000 for security, and they're still suing her. Okay, can I just say, and
0: then he's still crying, complaining, Mm. whining, thinking he's been a victim of something, and I think this is actually the strange. Not Shapiro, but the the, 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 the Berkeley College Republicans. Well, and you know. Actually,
1: there was a a statement that came out like a few weeks, two weeks, uh, last week, by the California College Republicans. I don't know how BCR would see this right now, but they were saying, and it's a complete fabrication, that the university tried to prevent them from bringing Shapiro in by charging them threatening to charge them $600,000 for a security fee, which they, the university never did. And this is a Trumpian thing, too. Facts don't matter. Right. You know? So if you can make the university look repressive, you just go ahead. And they're all over Fox News lying about this. I mean, really, it's incredible. I have to say this, too. I've been studying, as you said, studying student policy for 30 years. I've never seen a student, I mean, there's plenty of tensions with the administration. There's always been tensions. But to, to base a lot of your politics on lying about the administration and its free speech record, that's pretty bizarre, and that's new. So I'm saying I think that's a Trumpian thing, you know, where basically facts don't matter. So a university that's going to have to defend your free speech rights is being depicted as suppressing your free right, speech right. rights, which is bizarre.
0: No, it's bizarre. It's actually depressing to me that the university then has to defend itself against simple lies mm-hmm. and sort of correct an impression yeah. that the media picks up. And I think what you're saying, part of it, is the media should at least do its job to say to verify the facts. Right. And
1: by the way, just to go back to that Shapiro event, in order to break this media narrative that was trashing the university, what did the university do with Shapiro? They gave him the Zellerbach auditorium, which, and threaded almost a million dollars worth of security. They closed five buildings in the campus area, in this row plaza area, which, by the way, mostly st- disproportionately served students of color. They had a barricades up on the lower plaza. In, in other words, the university had to make a choice, you know, do we have business as usual? and then get really beat up by the media for, you know, not protecting our speakers or whatever? Or do we make sure that this speaker who is really of interest to just one small student organization not only can come to campus but has a security perimeter? And by the way, I don't blame them for doing it because after Charlottesville and after the Milo riot, they thought that, you know, they have to do this. But, you know, where do you draw a line? Like, the university, by the way, was a terrible budget deficit.
0: This is a really difficult thing. I mean, I actually did the math. I think you could support over 70 first year students who are in this bridge Mm -hmm. program, sort of, you know, uh, sort of underfunded students who could attend the University of California, or you have one event like this. So it's a very difficult calculation. I think the Chancellor really grapples with that and says, are we doing the right thing to satisfy a media perception Mm -hmm. or the legislature to spend this money? Or is this money better spent? And actually, there's another part Could these people be Skyped in? Are they really that essential to our education? And
1: by the way, you see, this is an interesting contrast. So she did that, right? And so the Chancellor Chris, says she really looked good. Now what Dirks did with with Ann Coulter was he asked the acting dean of the law, he asked people, is there space available? And they said no. Now, but the dean said, look, if you really want to do this, they're taking an exam, I could give you the hall. But then the chancellor said, well, will that disrupt her? He said yes. And so he did what he's supposed to do, I think, as chief campus officer, academic officer, and said, no, I'm not going to disrupt our classes for Ann Coulter. Right. And so what happens to him? He's now got the reputation as he canceled Ann Coulter. Mm-hmm. So you see how crazy this is. It's really distorting. Well, now, actually, I, I
0: think it's the job of the university to give these people more of a platform. They have a platform, fine. They can use it you know, as long as they want to. I do think where it becomes difficult that parents are recognizing now maybe, mm-hmm. saying "Did we're spending a million dollars
1: on this kind of show, that yeah. they're saying maybe this isn't the best thing for my tuition or my Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an important point. I'm, I still think the university did a good thing by trying to protect this free speech tradition, but also I think there needs to be more understanding that there are people who are just using you know, it's just, yeah. this is about this era, right? Everything gets trash. you know, all these answers. All these but all people are
0: using it, as you said earlier, it's weaponized. There's a hypocrisy in it yeah. because they will not allow other types of speech. Yeah, and, but I
1: think the solution is not to bar them, but to try to better socialize the students to have yeah. a sense of what Mari was talking about, responsibility right. towards your community. Right. Here's the problem, they don't regard the university as their university. They regard it as like this cultural fifth column, this, this enemy. Right. And that is really problematic, if you have people who are part of your institution who see it in such an antagonistic way. So I think, in a way, this happens more, I don't know if you know this book by Amy Binder, it's called Becoming Right. She's a sociologist who studied uh, conservative students on two campuses, It's pre-Trump, but a very good study. And she studied these two campuses, she doesn't name them, but people think one was Harvard and one is Colorado State. And the students from Colorado State are doing just like the Berkeley students did, right? That is, they are affirmative action, bake sales, they'll antagonize people, they don't care. The Harvard students you know, identify more as Harvard students and care about their community and want to engage with the students who they don't agree with. And so they bring more intellectually, more credible conservatives than, say, the Colorado State students were doing it. And by the way, the Berkeley College Republicans, I've seen their you know, their Reddit account, they refer to the Harvard conservatives as liberals, right? <laughs> so, so, which is obviously a horrible put down. <laughs> right. but, but my point is, like, this may not be just a political problem it's more of a community building and pedagogical right, problem. Right. That universities that are so big, they can't properly socialize and, and get feelings of loyalty into the community. And I want to say too, this is very different when I was at Berkeley in the 80s, when the conservative students who came to the fraternities, their parents went to Cal and all that, they felt a sense of loyalty to the university. And so to me, I mean, it sounds all old fashioned, but I think there's a deeper issue here, which is if you feel so antagonistic to your university that you're okay, i going on TV and Defaming it now, you could say, "Well, do they believe it?" I don't know. Yeah, what okay. do they really believe? What they're saying? Maybe they do. But you know, in Berkeley, it was sort of well known. No matter what your politics are, even if you can't stand the administration, suppressing your speech is like the third rail of Berkeley politics and students. But you know, the administration knows they can't do that. Right. So for half people going on, you know, you had this. There was a the chair of the College Republicans, and they Troy Warden going on Fox News and saying, not only with their major speakers like Annapolis, but all their minor speakers, they're constantly being, you know, disrupted. And it was totally untrue.
0: But it's interesting actually what you're saying, identifying this kind of lack of faith in institutions, that actually students are going to an institution and they don't have that kind of attachment. And right. this is part of my community, I contribute to it. Right,
1: and actually this is resentment, because uh, uh, there's a story that uh, Chancellor Dirks told me that there was, and by the way, this is partially the polarization that happened off campus, coming on campus that the election of 2016, the presidential election, was very tense. And on campus it was all the more so, because you have a campus community, and going back to Berkeley again, which I studied closely, has a lot of immigrant students there, a lot of progressive students, and you have these right-wing students who are supporting Trump, and some of them, you know, would put on the sidewalk, build a wall, deport them all. In response, some of the conservative students' signs got ripped up, there was some physical and verbal intimidation, and then after, so here's what happened, right after the election, Chancellor Dirks goes to the student, he, he gave one of these conciliatory, you know, this, let's all come together statements, and he goes to the student senate, and after the, he gives his talk, one of these college Republicans comes up to him and says, we feel like we're being intimidated, you know, we're being treated like pariahs, but then he said, you know, you're helping this group and that group, you know, like all these minority groups, but not us. So there's this sort of like, you know, this passive-aggressive, this resentment of the university, which it makes it very difficult. The university now a symbol for all these liberal things that the right hates. Mm-hmm. So how can you be conservative and, and feel any loyalty to the university? That's the underlying problem. Like, why are these students inviting it's somebody It's quite to interesting.
0: Animals? Actually, Prudence Carter talked about this. She said they're in their feeling as well. And mm-hmm. she said, I've done a lot of work thinking about how the conservative students feel. It's yeah. quite alienated. But yeah. she said, nonetheless, nonetheless, there is no true equivalence between what they experience and other students experience. Oh, sure. No, so I, I, no, I I want, I want to ask you a it, final yeah, question sure, here. So, what should students in their first year here? What do they think? They, what do you think they should read or look at, or sort of to get a better handle on this free speech issue?
1: Well, I teach a class on student protest, so I have them read, you know, that Chermansky book on free speech, yeah, uh, Gilman Chermansky, but also Jerry Walden's thing about hate speech. Hate speech. So both because, of them are on the
0: podcast: so Irving Chermansky, free right, speech on campus, right. Jeremy Waldron, uh, the harm in hate speech. So right, so
1: that people understand there's a, a real debate going on here, and also. I like them to then look at what's happened in the past. You know, that is to look at what happened with the free speech So they should movement.
0: probably read your Freedom's Orate or Mario Sabio biography, yeah. it would be useful, or at least a section of that. Yeah,
1: or part of that. And I also think like looking at, my first book was called When the Old Left Was Young about student protest in the thirties. The whole chapter about suppression of dissent by from the administration. I think it's important for people, students to see that when administrators have power to, to police dissent, it can come back and bite the left. Because yeah, yeah. a lot of students don't understand that. Right. They think the administration is benign, and, and maybe at the moment it is, but it you can't trust that. Right. So
0: i put these links on the website for people to look at that, and sure. I hope to have you back on the podcast <laughs> in the future, because this topic will stay with us. Okay, sure. Thanks. Thank you so much, Robert. My
1: pleasure, okay, okay. great.